1 Corinthians chapter 10, reading verses 11 to 13, and then we'll head back into the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 39. So here we go. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And then back to Genesis chapter 39, and that is on page 33 of those Bibles. So please find that with me and then you can keep your finger in that spot. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thin thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us come to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those he held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. 
The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's get into scripture uh, and see what we can make of this amazing story. Dark, but amazing. As we announced last week, the teaching theme for 2024 is the hand of God in our world, the hand of God in our lives. That is, how does God make himself known? How does he guide? How does he interact with this world? How is he present and active? How is the transcendent, who you might say has no hand, has no hands, how is the transcendent imminent? And not just in the incarnation, Jesus had hands, but in each moment in our lives. We're asking the question, has God left us as orphans? As Jesus said, he wouldn't. Has he left us alone to sort of figure it all out in the mess? And to do this at the beginning of the year, there's a lot of things we're doing, probably looking at the book of Acts and a few other things. But during summer, we're looking at the story of Joseph over three weeks uh, from Genesis. The story of Joseph is important for anyone who has ever asked questions about deeper order. Anyone who's ever asked questions about the hand of God in our world, is he really there? Is he really present? Can he do anything? Because you'll see over these three weeks that Joseph's life is very messy. You saw it last week. Hated by his brothers. Abused by them. Displaced. That was last week. Sold to slavery in Egypt and believed to be dead. We started our service with, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, yet thou art with me. Right? Well, he was there in the valley of the shadow of death. And this week we found out he's accused of assault, sexual assault in Egypt and left in prison. And yet, verse 2 of chapter 39, yet verse 2, right there in Egypt, doesn't want to be there, but right there in Egypt, God was with him. And later, thrown in prison, we find out verse 20, God was with him and he prospered. In all of this, Joseph becomes prime minister of Egypt in order, we find out, last week, that God placed him there through the mess with his hand to save many lives, including the life of his family. And this afternoon, we're looking at the hand of God in temptation or testing. So I think I should pray first before we examine this story together. Let's pray. Father, we pray what Jesus said we should pray, which is to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. I'm going to read a letter to the editor, name and address withheld. A man responding to an article in the Sydney Morning Herald. I want you to get this, it's gut-wrenching. I quote, I am a 37-year-old man, that excludes me by the way, I am a 37-year-old man, and I found your recent feature on infidelity intriguing. Last year, I had an affair after seven years of marriage. It was beautiful, he writes. Made me feeling 10 years younger. 
yet it was nerve-wracking and filled me with guilt and confusion. The behavior of the cheat in your article could not have been, could have been mine, even down to the text messaging from the toilet. Apart from the guilt, the most significant baggage for me was the why. Why did I do it? Your article was like looking in the mirror. But we say that reading the Bible is like looking in the mirror. That's what James, Jesus' brother said. And I don't know who this man was, but I do know that this sermon is for him and for us, any of us who have faced a time of testing or temptation. So this week, is God near me in the testing or the temptation? And the answer, lest your mind wanders, is yes. If you allow him, you can block him out. That is, Joseph is blessed in Potiphar's house, even as he's tested and blessed also in the prison in the same way. Did you notice the parallel? But first, let's look at Potiphar's wife. Potiphar owns the home. Joseph has become his slave unwillingly, but there he is. You've heard it said, the heart wants what the eye sees. The heart wants what the eye sees. A clearer example is harder to find than in Genesis 39 from Potiphar's wife's point of view. Look at 39, chapter 39, verse 6. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. I don't read Hebrew, but I'm told in the Hebrew the word is effectively, he was spectacular. And after a while, Potiphar's wife took notice of Joseph, the heart wants what the eye sees, and said, come to bed with me, verse 8, but he refused. And he says he provides his reasoning. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or, it turns out, even to be with her. Smart, smart, uh, smart choice. And an extraordinary little exchange done in private. These things are done in private. So murky. Of course, more often it happens back then and now. The male towards the female and the Me Too movement told us that. But here's an example in reverse. Plenty of examples of male to female in the Bible. Here's an example in the Bible of a male towards a female. Note the day after day aspect, the sort of constant drip. It's all about wearing someone thin. Mark Twain once quipped, I deal with temptation by yielding to it. Which is, of course, one way to deal with temptation. It just goes away immediately. But clearly not Joseph. So three questions today. I just sort of put the error up there to see if you were noticing. Three questions today, they're in your order of service. What is this testing or temptation? What are some examples of temptation? There are three in the text, not just one. And thirdly, how do you stand under, under it? How do you stand under it? By the way, when I put this slide up later, I make another error. It's holidays, you know, I've been on holidays. I can have, it's a holiday mistake. Is that all right? Do you forgive me? Okay, thank you. Firstly, what is this testing or temptation? I typed temptation into Google and ironically, advertisements popped up. Trip to Europe a luxury car. We don't need to look it up. 
We know what temptation is. We experience it on most days and in different ways and to varying degrees. You might not be experiencing something so sharp, but you know, most days something comes along where you're like, what am I going to do with this thing, this desire or this thing being given to me or offered to me? To have temptation explained is like having hunger explained. But let me explain anyway, because there's some nuance in the biblical idea of temptation. In the Bible, testing and temptation are linguistically related. In the original language, I'm told, Here's what I found. says Google, in the original language, uh, to test or to tempt is to exploit a weakness. It is a test or a trial in which a weakness may be revealed, or in Jesus' case, and in Joseph's case here, a strength zone, because they had a choice and didn't walk through it. It is a choice or a challenge to choose between fidelity and infidelity to God. Two doors. Situation, two doors. And so in the uh, Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation could also be rendered, lead us not into a time of trial or a time of testing. And we experience both. The classic temptation here in Genesis 39 seems to belong to Potiphar's wife. The heart wants what the eye sees. And the testing belongs to Joseph. He's got a door to walk through. Joseph stands under the test, even as it cost him, he ends up in jail. Could have chosen an easier path. In Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife is, is testing the weakness in Joseph, and Joseph is the one being tested for a weakness. And of course, she also is being tempted in the classic sense, the one we all know. A temptation is usually an enticement or a lure, something deeply attractive, bait to the heart, uh, a hook that hurts your soul. It's generally done with manipulation or an appeal to curiosity or power or desire or fear of loss. Look at the serpent in the Garden of Eden speaking to the first Adam. We'll come to that. It usually comes with negative connotations, although in theory I could tempt you to do good. I could tempt you tonight with the joy of knowing God. Temptation can be experienced from two angles, an external one where someone is tempted even if they don't appear to want it. Like from a desire within, there might be another reason why they might walk through that door. They may want it, but the temptation is described with reference to the activity itself, a testing. The internal one is the one we all know. Uh, you're tempted, you want it, you desire it, you long for it. The door seems open and you can just walk through it. It comes from an inner drive to want a thing. The truth is, we don't know if Joseph wanted but resisted the advance of Potiphar's wife. We don't know. Text doesn't say. We just know that he resisted it, like Jesus resisted the devil in Luke chapter 4. When people succumb to the temptation, it often leads to penetrating guilt. Often, sometimes, regularly, temptation and giving into it leads to rigorous self-justification. Someone who gives into temptation, offering a weakness to sin, is often the first to justify themselves. They even get angry. 
Temptation often has many ramifications. There are social ramifications, families can break down, psychological ramifications, guilt, economic ramifications, debts can pile up, for example, with, uh, with gambling, and forensic ones too, people can be taken to court. In the Bible, temptation has at least three origins. The first one is the self. Temptation originates from within. That's exactly what James, the Lord's brother, said. He wrote, James 1:13, when tempted, no one should say, God has tempted me, you can't blame God, for God does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when? By his own uber desires. The word evil is not there in the Greek. When his own strong desire, he is dragged away and enticed. This evil, or the origin here, is from the evil of the heart, from within the human heart. We do things because we entice ourselves. We open the door. This, of course, is not the complete picture. Otherwise, humans would just pull themselves up. They'd fix themselves. But we all know that temptation is bigger than our hearts. So there are two more. One, another temptation, another source is from other people. And Joseph here is a good example. A woman of power uses that power in the household to entice a slave. It's a power imbalance. But the temptation for Joseph is outside of himself. We don't even know if he wanted it. We don't know. People will ask you in life to do extraordinary things, in business especially, and some of those things you'll need to rigorously resist. Even if they aren't in that moment something you want, you might have another reason to yield to the temptation or the testing. Sometimes it's easy to say, well, you know, that's all very tempting, but no thanks. But usually if you can say it like that, it isn't usually tempting. But there's a third origin, a darker one, and that is of Satan himself, not from the evil of the heart, but from the heart of evil. And the Garden of Eden narrative really is all about the heart of evil speaking to human hearts and saying, does God really love you? You know, you have to do what he says. <clears throat> and you don't want that, right? Everyone wants to be captain of their own soul. He doesn't want you to be equal with him. So go on, take a bite. The first Adam did not resist his temptation. Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, did. Now, some of you hear the word Satan and you think, well, that's nuts. You know, he's educated, he's Western, he's been around. Surely he doesn't believe in Satan. <clears throat> to which my response is, like when someone says, it's 2024. Do you really believe in Satan? <clears throat> My response is, especially since it's 2024, I believe in Satan. Especially in 2024. You think about the last 124 years. I believe we need to be rescued from one so cruel. I believe that Jesus provided such a rescue. Amen? Amen. Second question is, what are some examples of temptation? Well, in Genesis 39, there are three temptations. Uh, Potiphar's wife yields to all three. You might have just heard the one, but there are at least three. The first one's the obvious one. That is the sexual temptation. Verse 7, his wife, Potiphar's wife says, 
come to bed with me, verse 8, but he refused. This is an encounter played out in the minds of many people. The master of the house, Potiphar, is away on business. There's a strong man about the house. He stands tall. He's spectacular. She's sexually aggressive and offers herself here without apparent obligations. No request. And presumably Joseph could have given in, especially over time. Who knows if he wanted her? We don't know, but he is 20. And even if he didn't want her, maybe there's a path to happiness or progression to be her plaything. And I know many people have been tempted to do silly things on the path to power. Again, the Me Too movement told us that. But it's all wrong. Joseph knows that God has ordained a sexual ethic from the beginning of creation. For this reason, a man leaves his father and his mother, joined to his wife, two become one flesh. Jesus later says, what God has joined, let no one separate. And the plan and purpose of God in creation is that that one man, one woman, remain sexually faithful until death do us part. Joseph knows that this is good. It's in Genesis. It's for good. He knows that the sex is to be enjoyed within the safety and joy of bounded marriage or covenant. And that the covenant one makes in a marriage is like a steel vessel. Anybody who's done my marriage preparation course knows I pull out a, an old communion cup. And I say, here's a glass and here's a communion cup. Glass, pewter. If I drop this, what happens? Breaks. If I drop this, what happens? Bounces. A covenant that one makes in a marriage doesn't guarantee that a marriage is healthy. But it is like a steel vessel which contains a joyful relationship into which sex is enjoyed in trust. Which is why Joseph says to Potiphar's wife, how then could I do such a wicked thing? How can I do something against the plans and purposes of God? So different from an Australian view of sex outside of marriage, of the Australian sexual ethic. So that's the first temptation. Did you notice the other two? There's also a power temptation here. Joseph has been given great power in Potiphar's house, and he could have used it to do wrong. Potiphar, we're told, is the captain of the guard, which probably means he's the head of Pharaoh's army, the kind of man who would head Egypt, even today. You know, you might, it's the language you might use of somebody sort of running Egypt today. And Joseph is not just any slave, verse 4, God is with him. Joseph found favour in, in Potiphar's eyes and became his attendant. And I'm told the word attendant denotes a position of power. He's not just Potiphar's social secretary. He is the master when the master's not at home. How does he use such a power? Well, we've learned there and in prison, in acts of service, in humility, in the good of others, in excellence, verses 1 through 5, so that the master only concerns himself with his food. He just eats, verse 6. Who would want help like that? But in any way, in some ways, Joseph is like Jesus, where Jesus is a true and better Joseph. Jesus, as Messiah, had ultimate power. The book of Philippians says that Jesus, though being in nature God, 
didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but being in nature God, emptied himself, become the form of a slave, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is, being in nature God he served, because that's what it is to be God, to serve. So you thought God was uh, about exercising his own power to his playthings. I'm sorry, you've misunderstood Christianity against pagan religions. Jesus follows in the line of his father by giving up his life. And Satan, though, tempts Jesus in Luke 4 to use that power to save himself, to become great. And also on the cross, save yourself, you who saved others. But Jesus uses his power to serve. He didn't have a death wish, he had a life with wish to die as a ransom, to save others, many lives. They meant evil, God meant good. Potiphar's wife also has power in the household. She says, come to bed with me, and presumably she thinks it happens. She's insistent. In the Hebrew, it's two words, and her first words to Joseph in the story, and those words are, bed now. Potiphar's wife is in the seat of power. He's a slave, which makes his denial a bit dangerous and makes his agreement perhaps a path to power, maybe. She uses her power to gain something for herself, Joseph, gratification. Although he is of age, he's still a slave, and it is abuse. Now, I know the congregations of the parish of Churchill, and being a city church, there are people here who hold considerable power. There are people here who feel very powerless, I know. But there are also people here who hold considerable power. How will you use that power? The temptation is to use it for your benefit, your pleasure. How will you use your power to serve others? If you know Jesus, be like him. The third temptation is a verbal one. That is the temptation to lie. Joseph resists his master's wife's tempting. They're alone in the room one day, something he's been avoiding. We know that from verse 10. She says, verse 11, bed now. It's a power play. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. And he's like, oh no, you can already feel it. Um, the cloak is gone. She's got it. He can't get it back. He knows where this is heading. I don't know if you have the stomach to watch uh, the Netflix miniseries, Inside Man with David Tennant. It is good, but fair warning. You wouldn't normally get such a, um, uh, a recommendation from a pastor, probably. It's a bit dark, but there's a moment where, like, he's, they've got the USB. She's got the cloak. He knows where this is heading. By the way, it's not the first time that Joseph has had a problem with a cloak. She holds onto the cloak, close, and uses it to spin a narrative. Verse 14, this Hebrew has been brought to, to us to make sport of us. There's an anti-Semitic tone to it. He came here to sleep with, he came here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, verse 15, he left the cloak out, he left the cloak outside beside me and ran out of the house. She keeps the cloak beside her until the master comes home and repeats the lie. The temptation to lie is strong, but it happens all the time. Why do we lie? Well, for many reasons, but one of them is you close your eyes and you can say, 
I can solve my problem easily. If I don't say it, I won't get the thing I need, and I can get it. This is a shortcut. But every lie is a tragedy because God is a God of truth. When I was in youth group, they used to say, um, everyone's a sinner. You know, and they'd say, if you don't believe me, put up your hand if you've ever told a lie. And the whole point was, um, the person was trying to explain that uh, you, you do even little things like lying. But lying is no little thing because it erodes trust. And some lies result in grave moments of injustice. And this is one of them. The master throws Joseph in prison. Good help might be hard to find, but one's wife is sacred. Potiphar believes the lie, maybe, who knows? Certainly, he throws Joseph in prison. Joseph doesn't have a chance to defend himself, so he doesn't lie. Maybe he wasn't able to lie. But I suspect that Potiphar is afraid to find out the truth. Now, there are many more temptations in life. You can name it the temptation to gamble irresponsibly or to get drunk too much. There's a temptation to steal or to laziness, temptation towards anger, temptation to overeat or to overspend, temptation towards despair, temptation to greed. By the way, the gospel of Jesus is the answer is a door to each of these. And I'll come to that in a moment. There's the temptation to hurt those that you love. Isn't that crazy? One temptation that exists throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, is the temptation to give up faith in Jesus Christ, to walk away from God. So we'll need help. How then to stand under the temptation? And three ways I'm going to build in escalation towards the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. The first one is not the gospel. It's not the good news. But it is a way to stand under the temptation. And the first way is to simply say no to it. To say no. To, to, to say no. I mean, that's sort of what Joseph does. I mean, there's a background to Joseph's life. But verse 9, how could I do such a wicked thing? Some of us simply need resolve. We need some steel in our backs. We know it's wrong. And if I can put it this way, we need a man up, all of us, and to start to say no where we need to say no. And sometimes it will require courage and strength. There's a sense of this when the Apostle Paul says, flee pornea, flee sexual immorality. Joseph did this. And so we could say, I'm giving the money back. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to stop the gambling. I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought it might be hard, but you know, it's anonymous. I'm giving up the internet to save me from the pornography. I'm breaking up with him. I'm going back to my wife. I'm gonna own up to the lie and there'll be some consequences. It might be hard, You'll have to talk to people through that. You'll need a Christian friend. You'll need a church, quite frankly, and especially a church that believes in grace and mercy, where people in the church know that they too are sinners. You know it's wrong. You need to say, how can I do such a wicked thing? The second way is to then bring God in. 
That's not enough to say no, because if you could just say no, then everyone could pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And so we need to bring God in. He, Joseph says, how can I do this sin against God? He realized that if we were to do this thing, it would be a sin against God, that God is wronged by our sins towards others. That's important to say, God is wronged by our sins towards others. You say, how? You say, well, in the opening chapters of Genesis, each human being is special. Each human being made in the image of God. Is that wrong a human being? I'm wronging the one who made him in his image. God is not just a benign figure hoping to make my life a little bit better. And you might have come to this church today and said, gee, that wasn't very hopeful. Well, what did you want? Why did you want that? Didn't you want the truth? He isn't a benign figure. He is the creator of all, the judge of all. He sees all, and he owns my life. This is why we say in the beginning of the communion service, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, none, and never. And yet he is good, I tell you, to sin is to sin against God. King David knew this after he abused Bathsheba when he said in Psalm 51, blot out my sin against you have I sinned. This is huge. God is watching. God will call us to account. Indeed, if we don't take the door of forgiveness from God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we may indeed face hell for what we have done. And that alone ought to give us a moment of pause. There's a t-shirt that used to go around, Jesus is watching you download that porn. Uh, conversation stopper, if I ever saw one. Jesus said, there is nothing hidden that will not be brought to light. That should give you a moment of pause and an appropriate fear, but a fear that leads somewhere. Fear can help you. It's not enough by itself, any more than putting yourself up by your own bootstraps. In the end, we'll need salvation. We'll need a new heart. Joseph appears to have a new heart, but we have every reason to have a new heart because of the work of Jesus Christ. The third way to deal with temptation is to embrace the work of God for you. And this is the gospel path. This is the good news. In the end, Christ was like Joseph, or Joseph like Christ. Christ a new and better Joseph in a position of power, Jesus, sent to be a slave, to serve by saving, he too was falsely accused and placed not in a prison, but in the tomb. But God was with him. He too was tempted to use his power for himself, tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And when tempted, he quoted scripture, Deuteronomy. He uses memory verses to overcome his temptation. He was tempted also on the cross, you who saved others, save yourself. But Jesus resisted this temptation in the power of God, the second Adam, precisely because the first Adam did not resist his. And he died so that you and I could live. He died so that you and I could be forgiven. He died so that you and I could be tempted, not by sin, but rather by God's love. What a beautiful temptation. His death means that I can be forgiven. His resurrection means a new life. And the pouring out of his spirit, we'll talk about that in 2024, the hand of God, means that I have a new presence, 
a new dynamic to draw upon, I have indeed the hand of God alive in my life. God was with him. And therefore to pray for and receive an answer to the prayer to have strength to resist. Let's pray. I'm going to pray on the back of 1 Corinthians 10. Father, each of us knows temptation and we know what it means to choose the door of sin. And so we thank you for Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and for forgiveness that even stands on the other side of that door because of your grace and mercy. And yet, and yet, we want to follow Jesus and love him and obey him, follow you, worship you alone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, if you think you are standing firm, be careful lest you fall. And so we say to you, God, that no temptation has overtaken us except which is common to humankind. And you are faithful. You will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And when we are tempted, you will also provide a way out, a door, so that we can endure under it. Show us that door and give us power. Lead us, give us power to walk through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.